0: Okay, Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 starting this morning, this afternoon rather. Craig has mentioned that on the campus encounters where there are folks there that object to the concept of the resurrection. They did. They will. People will object until Christ returns. But there's nothing new because Paul and the apostles had to deal with that as well. So we're going to look at a passage, Acts chapter 17, where there was objection and response to Paul's teaching on the resurrection. I want to start at verse 7 verse 16 rather Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens his spirit was provoked with him within him as he saw that the city was full of idols so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there some of the epicurean and stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said what does this babbler wish to say But others said, we will hear you again about this. Two times in the passage, we, hear, we see the resurrection mentioned. We've got verses 18 and 32. Both times, we see that there's a response which is not necessarily positive there. We see some people in verse 16, in essence, saying that Paul is babbling He's speaking nonsense and he's preaching about foreign divinities because he was not preaching the way that the gods of the Athenians were and behaved. And then he gets down to verse 32 and they mock him for preaching the resurrection. Nothing has changed. Now we also know that some people did believe here, the passage, if we read farther, some people believe. But I want to look at the objections here. I want to look at the objections in the immediate context here of what Paul is talking about. I also want to look at other passages where the resurrection is preached in Acts because it's preached to both Jew and Gentile. But I want to look at the objections first, and then I want to cover two points in the course of the message. First, I need to deal with just what is the resurrection? Every time I've, I've preached on the resurrection in the last eight years, Somebody has come up to me and said what they believed about the resurrection, and, the, and they have an erroneous understanding of what the resurrection is. Now, you may think that the resurrection is very basic and that everybody understands what the resurrection is and what it looks like and what's going to happen at the resurrection, but not everybody does. So, we need to talk about and define our biblical terms so we're all talking about the same thing. And then, I also want to talk the second point is what is the importance? Why does it matter? What is the importance of the resurrection of the dead? And what is the importance of the resurrection of Christ also along with that? So but let's, look at these, let's look at the passage. I just want to do a, a quick run through the passage here. Paul's in Athens. Okay, He's left Thessalonica. He's, he's now made it to Athens. And he gets to town and he's not happy. He looks around and he sees that the city is full of visible idols. It, it, says, it says his spirit was provoked. That's a kind way of saying Paul was angry. Paul was not happy by seeing what he saw here. And so he goes into the synagogue. Well, who is going to be in the synagogue? The Jews are going to be in the synagogue. And what does he do? He reasons with the Jews there. He also goes to the marketplace and he reasons with them. And he's reasoning with people who would also hold to what we would see as the Epicurean or Stoic philosophy. So he's reasoning with, with people of a culture here. Everybody has, every culture has its culture. He's reasoning with people who are immersed in the Greek culture here. When you see Epicurean and Stoics, that's a philosophy that had been in place for a couple, 300 years by this time. So these people had a mindset to them. And he's, and he's telling them about the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of Christ. Why, why do they say what they say? They say what they say because the Epicureans and the Stoics both denied that there could be a physical resurrection. Because they believed that when the body died, the body just ceases to exist. Now, did they believe in a soul? Yes, they believed that men, women had souls. But the Epicureans also believed that when you die, your soul ceases to exist. The Stoics, some of them allowed for the possibility of of an eternal soul after you die. But that's, that's the mindset of the people here. They didn't have a category for a resurrection of the dead. And even if they weren't ascribing to Epicurean or Stoic philosophy, their literature going back beyond that, you go back to if you ever had to read Homer's Iliad when you were in school. In the Iliad, Homer makes a statement about there is no such thing as the resurrection of the body. If you ever had to read anything by Sophocles in his play Electra, you have the same thing. Sophocles would say that. So these people just don't have anything in their mind that allows for somebody going into the grave, dead, and then rising from the grave in whatever form a resurrection might look like. That's why they respond the way that they respond here as Greeks. Because that's their, that's their view of what happens at and after death. There's, there's just nothing that can happen with the body after death. So that's why they say, this guy's babbling. And, and their gods, their Athenian gods, weren't like this god that Paul was preaching. Then you get out to the end when, he's, when, when he says, you all are going to be accountable because, because, the, because this man who's been raised from the dead is going to judge the world in righteousness on a day appointed. And everybody's responsible. You all need to repent. And what do they do? The same thing that people do to you and me. They mock us. They go, get real. They think we're crazy. We'll look at what what Festus says about Paul later on in in Acts, where where, where Festus questions Paul's sanity too about about this issue concerning the resurrection. But that's, that's what Paul and the apostles had to deal with. From a Gentile perspective. Now, what about the Jews? We'll get there when we get get to these passages later on. But you know that the Bible talks primarily about two categories of Jews that Jesus encountered. Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, we can throw the scribes in there, too. But Pharisees and Sadducees. Did the Sadducees believe in a resurrection? No. No. That's that's what's behind that encounter in Matthew 22 when when they come to Jesus and ask Him whose wife will will she be in in the resurrection? Because they don't even believe in the resurrection. Now, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection. We don't want to say that Jews didn't believe in a resurrection. Jewish teaching believed in a resurrection because the Old Testament does give us Hints about resurrection. It gives us hints about resurrection in Psalm 16. It gives us hints about a resurrection when Job says, I will see him in my flesh in Job chapter 19. And there are other passages. We've got Daniel 12 where it talks about resurrection. So Jewish thought had a category for resurrection, but they didn't have a category for a resurrection before the last day. And Paul is here preaching a resurrection that's already happened of Christ. So the Jews would have had an issue with what Paul was preaching. And that's what you're going to see in these other passages in acts as we look at them. These are the objections. Now, what are the objections we run into in our day and age? Well, the, the issue that we've got in our day and age is that over the last several hundred years, since the Enlightenment in the 18th century especially, our world has become very anti-supernatural. Because now, men, in the age of reason, we can just think about whatever is true. We can define whatever is true. Man has been given enough intelligence through, even before Darwin came up with his theory of evolution in the 19th century. Man, man is smart enough. Man can figure out what reality is. We don't need that which is supernatural. We don't really need to consider that which is beyond the physical. But I will hold our Bible is at root supernatural. Christianity is supernatural. You cannot have Christianity without the supernatural. Thomas Jefferson tried. You can, you can go online and read the Jefferson Bible. okay. Thomas Jefferson literally cut out all of the supernatural passages in the Gospels. How do you have Christianity without the supernatural passages in the Gospels? How do you have Christianity without which that transcends nature? Because what does supernatural mean? Supernatural is comprised of a prefix and an adjective, isn't it? The adjective is natural. Something is described as natural. Okay, natural food stores as opposed to unnatural food stores. But natural food stores. It's describing what the, what the foods are that are sold at the store. Super, the prefix, means above or over or beyond the natural. When we talk about the resurrection of the dead, are we talking about something which is beyond the natural? Yes, we are. I I know you may grow weary of me pointing to the cemetery, but I'm going to point to it again. (laughs) Go down there. You ever walk around a cemetery? Any cemetery? How much life is there? There's no life. There's no life in that one. The grass is dead. There's nothing happening down there. Paul and these guys come and say, People in graves are going to come out of the graves. Think about that. Go, go down there. Every one of those graves is going to be empty one day. Everyone, everybody that's ever fallen dead on the earth, whether it's been left where it fell or it's been buried, or it's been burned, it's going to be resurrected. It's going to come to life. That is supernatural. That is beyond the natural. Because the natural is a body dies, it goes into the ground, and it has no more life. Paul, the apostles, you and I have a supernatural claim to proclaim to people. And that supernatural claim is Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day. We're going to look at passages in Acts where it's clear that as they're sharing the gospel, they think it's pretty important because they kept doing it over and over and over. They're proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. They're proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. And that made me think as I'm preparing for this message, am I forgetting that when I tell somebody the gospel? It's like baptism. You read Acts chapter 8. You got the Ethiopian eunuch who who encounters Philip. And the, the eunuch's reading a passage from Isaiah. He doesn't understand it. Philip explains it to him. He explains Isaiah 53 to him. And what did Philip explain to him? And what did Philip tell him? Well, I think we can infer that Philip told him something we typically might not include in our gospel presentation in explaining Isaiah 53, because we see the passage when when the when the eunuch exclaims, "Hey, there's water over there. What prevents me from being baptized?" Well, how do you find out about baptism? (laughs) Because Philip probably told him about baptism, and so it is with the resurrection. Do we tell people about the resurrection? Because they're going to say, what? what? You're going to tell me that a man can rise from the dead on the third day? And you're going to tell me that after I die, I'm going to rise from the dead? And I'm going to have to give an account to God for what I did? In our naturalistic world, what does the world think of that claim? They think we are fools with a capital F. But we have to use biblical definitions for biblical words. And how does the Bible describe a fool? Does the Bible describe a fool as somebody who believes in and proclaims the resurrection? No. The Bible says a fool is the one who says in his heart there is no God. That's what foolishness is biblically. Foolishness is not what Paul was doing here in Acts chapter 17. Paul was being faithful to the truths of Scripture. Paul was proclaiming something that happened in time and space. A real historical act. People tell us we're fools because we believe in a fable. No, we don't. We believe in human history. Jesus Christ was a real man. Real flesh and blood. He really walked the streets. He really was a carpenter. He really had brothers and sisters. He really had parents. And he really died. And he was really buried. And he really rose from the dead. And Paul says, You want proof? There's still more than 500 people alive who saw him. Testifying to real history. We're not believing in something that was ethereal that, 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 some, that, that just couldn't happen. No, we believe in something that really happened. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul is proclaiming human history here. But our world being so anti-supernatural. It doesn't have a category for miracles. It doesn't have a category for somebody rising from the grave. That's what the word resurrection means. It means to rise, to stand up. You take them down there. Tell them, that name on that stone, whatever it is, Garcia. There's going to be a day when they stand up and they're going to look at you like you got three heads. But our Bible says it's going to happen because it's already happened with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the first fruits. So we proclaim that even though they think that we are foolish. And, and, and in this naturalistic world where they don't have a category for miracles, they will deny the miraculous even if it were to happen in front of them. Now, perhaps they've never actually had a miracle, something supernatural happen in front of them. But I'll tell you what, when, when you're sitting in, in, in Chippewa Correctional Facility 20 years ago, and this prisoner is at the microphone, and all of a sudden his disposition changes, and he starts speaking gibberish, and his eyes turn black, that's not natural. And he was that way for a couple minutes. And then he went back and started speaking normally. And and the volunteer sitting next to me says, did you see what I saw? Yeah, I saw it. Now, have I only seen it once? Yeah, but I've seen it once. And it was supernatural. The supernatural does happen. We have to be careful in our reform community that we get so so careful about certain arguments that we deny the supernatural, that we deny miracles. Miracles still happen. Our God is a miracle-working God. He is not asleep at the miracle wheel. I mean, I just bought, I just bought a two-volume book. It's got 800 pages documenting miracles, human miracles in human history. People being raised from the dead. People being healed. Miracles that our world wants to deny. Our God works miracles. Our God is going to continue to work miracles. Our God is not bound by nature. Our God, our God can act in His creation apart from nature anytime He chooses. He can heal people of that which medicine says cannot be healed. He can heal, and as Scripture says, he can kill. He's God; he can do that. So let's not get into into a doctrinal paint ourselves into a doctrinal corner on that which is miraculous. Christianity is at root supernatural. Because we're going to talk about the importance of the resurrection in a few minutes. But but it's it's supernatural. So when we talk about the resurrection, I I think we again have to define our terms. It's it's supernatural. But when we talk about resurrection, well, what is death? Because in order to be resurrected, you have to die. We have a biblical definition of death at the end end of James chapter 2 where the end of James chapter 2 tells us the body apart from the spirit is dead. So when body and spirit separate, that's when biblical death happens. When Paul was talking about to depart and be with Christ is better, that's what he's talking about. He couldn't depart and be with Christ until his body was separated from his spirit. And there came a time when he was separated his body from his spirit. That's death. Okay, where does the spirit go? For the Christian, the spirit goes to heaven. Body goes into the ground. Well, what happens with the body? Well, it's there. It doesn't do anything. Where's Abraham's body right now? Well, can you go and point, yeah, Abraham's grave is right here. I don't think you can do that. Can you go see, okay, King David is buried here. Okay, you you got biblical examples. Okay, put my bones here. Well, after thousands of years, the bones are dust again. But what's going to happen at the resurrection. Well, how's God going to do that if the bones are all dust now? (laughs) If you've got the God, if we have the Christ, who spoke all of this into being, you think it's too hard for Him to resurrect the dead? No, it's not. And He will resurrect the dead. And when the resurrection happens, it is supernatural. When body and spirit reunite, that's what happens at the resurrection. When you read the end of John 5 and you see this issue about the resurrection, there's a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. What happens? Everyone who has died before that moment is going to have their spirit reunited with their body. And it will be a physical body. A real body. Didn't Jesus give us that example? You've got, it, you've, got, you've got the passage there at the end of John. See. He wants them to look. He says, see, touch. Did a guy touch? <laughs> put, your, put your finger in the holes. They're real holes. Imagine what that was like. It wasn't mere academics for these guys because they knew that He had died. And they're now in a room and this guy who had died is standing there in front of them saying, see and touch. But what does Jesus also say? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. He's talking about us in that room. Do we believe? Do we really, really believe that that man rose from the dead? Because he did. And he said he was going to, and he said he was going to raise himself from the dead. Think about that. How many of those people down there a block away can raise themselves from the dead beyond having another powerful being, God, Raise them from the dead. How many people with a name on a stone down there can raise themselves from the dead? Not a one of them. But Jesus Christ said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Talking about Himself. That is supernatural. That's our God. And when we read our theology books, Especially in our community, a lot of these guys don't like to talk about things which are super, supernatural. Or even define it. You know, just defining supernatural. I, was, I, I went and looked in, in the, the theology book that we, that we did for the theology study from 2015 to 2018 Robert Raymond, Systematic Theology. He uses the word supernatural 73 times, but he never defined it. He's got a chapter entitled The Supernatural Christ of History. But He never defines the supernatural. That's why I want to take a minute and define supernatural. This is why I want to take a minute and define what the resurrection is. Because the resurrection of the body is a real resurrection of the body. You think about every single person who has died before now going back to Adam and Eve. How many people I don't know. But every single one of them is going to rise from the grave. Righteous or wicked. And they're going to have to give an account. Now, the people who are alive when Christ comes back are also going to have to give an account. But they won't be resurrected because they haven't died. They will be transformed as well, but they won't be resurrected. My burden today is to talk about the resurrection because the resurrection is not it's not the same thing as what Jesus did with Lazarus. Did Lazarus die? Yes. Did he really die? <laughs> yes, he did. It's interesting. Jesus waited a little while to do his work, didn't he? He waited long enough for Lazarus to start to rot and stink. But Jesus raises Lazarus. But Lazarus was going to die again. Upon the resurrection that we're talking about here today, once a person is resurrected, they will never physically die again. Now, some will be cast into a place where there's a second death, but everybody who's resurrected gets a body back. What is it exactly like? I don't know. Don't dwell on that. Just know that the resurrection is a reality. Everybody who's resurrected is going to get a body back, their body back in one sense. That will be like their old body, but it's going to be different from their old body because it can't die. Even the wicked. Are the wicked going to have a body that will last forever? And where will the wicked's body last forever? In the lake of fire, prepared for Satan and his angels. So, everybody who dies is going to be resurrected when Christ comes back. And when Christ comes back, doesn't that mean it's over? Our Bible talks about this age and the age to come. What's the dividing line between this age and the age to come? Christ's return and when Christ returns that's when the resurrection happens for everybody who's died in human history and that's when judgment happens for everyone who's died in human history and for everyone who's alive when Christ comes back so that's what i wanted to set up the second half of this is just establish what the resurrection is it's supernatural what is the resurrection it's body and spirit being reunited And it's going to happen for every single person who dies. Now, what is the importance of the resurrection? I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, if if you could, please. There are people who profess to be Christians who will deny the reality of the resurrection. Who will deny the reality of the resurrection of Christ. That's not a good thing. Brother Jennings talked about not being overly judgmental in the first hour. I will not be, I don't think, overly judgmental here, but if you do not believe in the resurrection of Christ, you have a problem. And it's a big problem because of what I'm going to read right now. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's start at verse 16. Actually, let's go back to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Let's stop there. I think you can apply from here that some of the Corinthians were saying that there is no resurrection. Paul is refuting an argument here now. Remember, he has spent 18 months teaching Corinth before this. But some people have now come to believe that there is no resurrection of the dead. We continue with verse 13. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, everyone in this room who has faith in Christ, your faith is useless. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins but He has been raised. That's why it matters. It is not a secondary issue to deny the truth of the resurrection of Christ because a person still being in their sins is a big deal. We don't want to have 250 people in this room believing a lie, thinking that they are forgiven, when they are in fact still in their sins. But if Christ has not been raised, that's the reality. But Christ has been raised, which is the true reality. And we are not still in our sins. And our faith is not futile. Because the, re- the resurrection of Christ is a real event that really happened in human history. And elsewhere in this chapter, Paul would say, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul says, you want proof? Ask around. Because people saw. That's why the resurrection of Christ matters. And for theologians and even some pastors to say, well, I just don't believe in this because that's, that's ridiculous. That's foolishness. I will say that is heresy. That is not a matter of Christian tolerance. Because being in your sins is a big deal. And if the one thing that still had to happen in order for people to not be in their sins did not happen that's a big deal but it did happen praise god and we are not in our sins any longer so let's look at what let's look at what the apostles do with this issue of the resurrection let's go to acts chapter 2 Acts chapter 2, you know it as Peter preaching at Pentecost. What does he say about the resurrection? Verses 22 and 23 and a few more. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then in verse 25, he goes to the Old Testament. He goes to their scriptures to establish his point. For David says concerning him, Quote, "...I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption." This is where they should have seen what was going to happen. Quoting Psalm 16 here, "...You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. you ever think of David as being a prophet? Verse 30 says he, he was a prophet. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did His flesh see corruption." He proclaims the resurrection twice in this passage to Jews who are there at Pentecost, some of whom were Sadducees who would not have believed in the resurrection, but He proclaims it. He doesn't establish a bunch of proof points on it. He merely proclaims it, and He proclaims that it is fulfillment of Scripture. Let's go to the next chapter, Acts chapter 3. We know that he has healed a beggar in the first part of the chapter. The people are astonished, astounded, verse 11 says. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. (laughs) Peter was not interested in making friends here. (laughs) You guys killed the author of life. That's how he addresses this. That's what he says to them. But he. But what else does he say? Verse 16, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and that the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. But verse 15, God raised him from the dead. He proclaims the resurrection again. Let's go to Acts chapter 4. They're now before the council. Why? Verse 2, because they were greatly annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Remember, He's just healed a guy. We may look at what Jesus did back in Matthew chapter 10 when He commissions the men to go out and, and heal people, cast out demons, raise the dead, that sort of thing. And, and Jesus says, you're going to be brought before councils on account of that. And we may go, well, why would people do that? Because they're doing something which is good and noble. Isn't healing people, raising the dead, casting out demons a good thing? Well, we've got it right here. They've healed a guy. And they're not happy. They're not happy merely because of him. But because he's he's doing it in the name of Jesus and he's proclaiming the resurrection. But then what does Peter say? Let's look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Now we know that in verse 1, There were Sadducees there the day before. Were there likely Sadducees there the next day when Jesus says this? Yes. But even if there weren't, he still proclaims the resurrection. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. So far, he's been been telling Jews the story. Acts chapter 10, he's not going to tell it to a Gentile, Cornelius. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He preaches to Gentiles and says this. And then what happens right after this? The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, verse 45, just like the promise of Joel 2 that was fulfilled at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that the Spirit is poured out to all people. Let's go to Acts chapter 13. We now have Paul. He's in the synagogue. He's in Antioch. Verse 26, "...Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed." And when they had carried out all that was written on him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So he proclaims in the synagogue here the resurrection of Christ. Let's go farther out now to Acts chapter 23. Paul is now before the council. Verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is res- with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So he proclaims the resurrection to people who do not believe in the resurrection. Here, the Sadducees. Next chapter, Acts 24. He's going to speak before the governor here. Verse 9 says he's going to speak before the governor, but I will start at verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. A resurrection of the just and the unjust. Okay, one more. Acts 26. We will start at verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What the prophets and Moses said. The Hebrew Scriptures. What did the prophets and Moses say? Verse 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Why quote all that Scripture? I quote all that Scripture to say that I think it is clear that the resurrection matters in our Bible. The resurrection matters when we're sharing with people. The resurrection may seem preposterous to people, but we proclaim it anyway. It's just like the ascension of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the virgin birth, they think all of that is preposterous, but you say it anyway. You think about what happened in Acts chapter 2 when he's preaching at Pentecost. He throws all of those people under the bus for what they did to the Messiah. And what happened? 3,000 people are added to the church that day. Because it's true. And it goes to people's hearts. Because it goes to what people already know to be true. People know what God requires of them. But their consciences have been seared. Sin suppresses what they know to be right. They know who God is, they know what God requires. They know, what, they know the invisible attributes, Romans 1. These people in Acts chapter 17 who are mocking Paul, who are saying he's a babbler, he's a preacher of foreign divinities, they don't want to be held accountable at the end of the day. See, this is the thing about, about people who deny something beyond the grave. If you believe, if a person believes that all that happens when you die is your body goes into the ground and that's it, it just sits there, it deteriorates, it goes back to the dust, and you don't even have a soul, which a lot of people will affirm nowadays. Well, of course, they're going to deny a resurrection because if there's a resurrection, there's accountability. Man doesn't want to be held accountable to God while he's alive, much less after he dies. Man wants to be sovereign in his own life. Man wants to eat, drink, and be merry. Man wants to define his own truth. We know that in our postmodern age, you can't even define truth anymore in a postmodern world. Well, if you can't define truth, how can you say that there is or isn't any truth? But think about it. man. Man. Man grates at being held accountable to a standard outside of himself, whether it is God or whether or not it is a law that you don't agree with. I mean, I, I was uh, I got called for jury duty here a few weeks ago, and and while we're while we're downtown, one of the one of the questions that one of the prospective jurors asked is the the sentence for one of the crimes that the defendant was looking at was 2 to 20 years. The guy starts grilling the defense attorney, saying, why is the sentence for this 2 to 20 years? And the defense attorney (laughs) takes the football, punts it to the judge, and the judge looks at the guy on the jury and says, ask your legislators for whom you voted. Because they're the ones who made the law and they're the ones who determined the sentence. But this guy clearly had a problem with the sentence because he didn't get to determine the accountability for breaking the law. So it is in God's economy. We do not have a democratically installed legislature in God's economy, God is the legislature. He gives the law. He determines the standards. He determines the punishment. And man doesn't like that. Just like you may say, I think that speed limit of 60 on 410 is unjust. Well, unjust or not, it's the speed limit. (laughs) And it's imposed upon you as you drive on 410 how much more in God's economy that we have a holy God. We sang it. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The, thri- the, the, the three-part saying there of Isaiah 6 and Revelation chapter 4. Our God is holy. And man has a problem because God is holy. Man does not want to be held accountable by a holy God in this life How much more after He dies for all of eternity? Well, He will be held accountable. And we have the solution to His problem of accountability. We have the medicine for the sickness. We have the Gospel. We have the resurrection. We have that which is supernatural. Out on the campus, in your home, at your family dinner over Thanksgiving weekend, people may deny that there's anything beyond the physical, beyond nature. They can deny it all they want, but denial of truth does not negate the fact that truth is truth. They can't explain certain things about reality. How can they even? If you, if you live in a totally naturalistic world, how can they even define something so basic as love and hate? If it's totally subjective. Everybody admits loving your neighbor is a good thing. Even the lost will do that. Well, why is it a good thing? It's a good thing because there is a God beyond nature who loves. Who not only does love, but is love. But men don't want that accountability factor. You know, you, you see it in, in courtrooms. People people will people will plead not guilty when there's witnesses, there's video, there's all sorts of this, and they'll still plead not guilty because they don't want to be held accountable. But guilt guilt is still there. And Jesus came to set the captives free. Jesus came and made one man out of two men with the blood of the cross. Jesus came and did all of this and Jesus came and did all of this and it's all supernatural. A virgin birth is not natural. A resurrection from the dead is not natural. An ascension to the right hand of the Father is not natural. It's supernatural. But it's all true. And it's all part of the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he did to save his people that God had given to him. And, and all of this glorifies his father. We we have to be careful that we don't boil the resurrection down to, to something I could do as an old man. I could say, Well, you know, I've got old man's hands. Okay, we got old man's hands here, don't we, here, brother? Okay, you pick up your skin, there's no collagen left in there, and it's it's wrinkly and nasty. Well, the resurrection is not about me getting collagen back in my hands. The resurrection is about the work of God in changing His people so that His people can dwell in His full presence for all of eternity, glorifying Himself. The resurrection of our bodies is not about me having better knees, the resurrection of my body is about the fact that I will have a body that can bear to be in the full manifest presence of God and of the Lamb, and I will see the face of God, and He won't have to turn His face away from us because He will have changed us so much that our bodies will be able to, to take that Shekinah glory in its fullness. But not until then, and not until the resurrection happens. And He does it all by His power supernaturally, for His glory. And do I understand it in its fullness? No. (laughs) Do I believe it? Absolutely. And He wants us to trust Him in the meantime. And trust what He's told us about this. It's, It's about that change that He does. Remember, salvation belongs to the Lord. Even Jonah knew that. Lord accomplishes everything for His purpose. And He gives it to us as a free gift. You're going to get the gift of the resurrection, brethren. You're going to have what you see at the end of your Bibles as a gift. And those who rebel against Him will receive their own reward. Don't look at that as a gift. They will get the reward for their rebellion in a real body which will, be able to, which will be able to not be consumed by what you see in Revelation 14. Now how can that be? I don't know, but it's true. Just like our bodies will be able to be in the full manifest presence of God and of the Lamb where He will not have to turn His face away from us so will the bodies of the wicked for all eternity be able to not be disintegrated or destroyed as they suffered the torments of hell." Whatever that looks like. Because it is a fearful thing, right, to fall into the hands of the living God. But as it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, it is a blessed thing to have the God of our Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hold His people in His hands. And we are secure there for all eternity where He will hold us in this age. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He He will raise us from the dead. He will change us. He will raise us imperishable, incorruptible, immortal. Don't you want that? Don't you look forward to that? Isn't that something worth telling people? I read all those passages to show the apostles thought it was worthy of telling people. Even in an anti-supernatural age, we tell them that which is supernatural because it's true. So Father, help us. Help us to get to the end. Father, we want... Father, Father, as I pray, I see the realities of what You say about the resurrection of Your Son. I see the realities of what You say about the resurrection of the dead. Father, let not my flesh get in the way of the childlike faith I need to have to receive the truths about the resurrection of the dead. Father, let us all not have outside influences, let us all not have this world make its worldly points and say, you guys are foolish. You guys are out of your mind, as Festus said to Paul. Father, we're not out of our mind when we trust You and believe what You've revealed to us. So Father, help us to trust and believe in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you.